This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 83 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and today it is an incredibly rare and special privilege to welcome as my guest, Eddie Murphy, a living legend who rarely speaks publicly and has never done a podcast before. Murphy burst onto the scene in the early 80s as a Saturday Night Live cast member who single-handedly saved the show and then became the biggest star of stand-up and big-screen comedies in the world. For many years, Murphy could do no wrong. His blockbusters include 48 Hours, Trading Places, Beverly Hills Cop, Coming to America, The Nutty Professor, and Shrek. And he also received a Best Supporting Actor Oscar nomination for his terrific performance in the movie Dreamgirls. Murphy was, in his own words, the first black actor to take charge in a white world on screen. And he did so in humorous ways, which made him a favorite of people of all races. In more recent years, though, he became an intensely private person. He stopped doing stand-up. And following a string of flops at the box office, he stopped acting for nearly five years. Over the course of our conversation, Murphy candidly talks and jokes about his life and 36 years in the business, what led him into the world of comedy and appealed to him about it, why he thinks he found the early success and popularity that he did, and why he doesn't regard any of his films as failures, not even The Adventures of Pluto Nash, why he quit stand-up and what it would take for him to return to it why he doesn't drink or do drugs, use social media, or read newspapers, what he makes of the Oscar So White debate that has taken place in the years that he's been away from the silver screen, and why he elected to return to acting in an indie drama called Mr. Church, which had its world premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival back in April, and which Sinaloo will release on September 16th. In the film, which is based on a true story, Murphy gives a terrific performance as the title character, a black man who helps to raise a white child after her mother is diagnosed with cancer, but who never allows that child to learn much about his own life. Murphy's character's story begins to come into focus over the course of the film, just as Murphy's story does over the course of this conversation. So, without further ado, let's go to it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Mr. Murray, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. To begin with, we always just ask on this podcast, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Brooklyn, New York, and raised in Brooklyn and Long Island. My mom was a telephone operator, and my my dad was a boxer, and my other dad was a cop. There were some tough times in your childhood, and I was, you know, learning about your biological father and some time that you and your brother were away. And I just wonder, you know, do you think that... You're going to start off really deep. There. No, well, just that, <laughs> the, the reason I ask, though, is like, do you think that's where the interest in comedy comes from? Is that out of a desire to either make others or yourself laugh or happier or whatever? I don't, I don't think so. No? Yeah, yeah, I don't think it had anything to do with it. I know lots of times I'll be saying stuff like, uh, you know, pain, comedy comes out of pain, and I don't subscribe to that. I think that's, you know, this. I mean, some of the best comedians had dark stuff, but there are people that don't have dark stuff at all that are really funny. Jerry Seinfeld, you can't get brighter than that. Right. He's one of the funniest people there is, you know, so. So I don't, I don't think that that pain... I don't know if that came out like like I was trying to fill some hole by right, being right. funny. Do you remember when you first got a laugh, though, and when it maybe first occurred to you that this is a possible career path? Well, the whole family is funny, so we were always laughing around the house, and everybody around the house does uh, was <laughs> ranking, playing the dozens. I think you have to call it playing the dozens. Everybody in the house did that, like talk about each other yeah. in a funny way. So we all did that, so we were always laughing. I remember the very first time I was aware of the people laughing around me. We were on the bus coming from McCarran Pool in Brooklyn, and I must have been about eight or nine. When people were getting off the bus, every time somebody got off the bus, we were sitting in the back of the bus, and every time somebody got off the bus, I would start talking like I thought that person sounded and saying stuff that they were saying and everybody that was on the bus would be laughing and then they'd get off and they'd know ah, and I'm doing it about each person and the whole bus was like laughing and when I got off the bus the people kind of clapped and, and I was like what yeah this, it felt that good. was the very first time I was aware of hey they were, I had the whole room laughing right now what was it about a uh, talent shows in Long Island or something that that was the first time you were actually prepping to do almost a performance it wasn't just sort of off the cuff no like that was the very first time I got on stage was uh, there was a talent show at the youth center in Roosevelt and uh, I emceed the show me and this guy named Mitchell Kaiser the guy that ran the youth center was like, hey, you guys are really good at putting people down, you know, ranking people out, and the audience is heckle. So why don't you emcee the show, and if they heckle them, you could talk shit about them. You know? So I was like, okay, I could do that. Right. And in between that, you know, we did, I did impressions and stuff, and this guy Mitchell did impressions too. So we emceed the show, and if anybody heckled, we'd be like, oh, shut up, yo, you ain't shit. You know? <laughs> Look at your shoes. Right. Look at your jacket. Look at your house. Look at you. Because <laughs> you knew everybody in the audience. If somebody heckled, it was not like a, it was like, I know that was you, Libby. <laughs> You're right to the point. <laughs> and from that came stand-up and just testing it around the comedy Well, I, that was the first time I got on stage, but I had started listening to Richard Pryor before that. Like, I had started that album, That Nigga's Crazy, came out maybe the same year. And I had started listening to that. 
back then I wasn't going like, hey, that's who I'm going to be. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm going to do. But looking back now, I became fascinated with it because I listened to it every day. I would listen to it all the time, over and over and over again. And, and that's when I started doing those little bars. It was a bar in the town called uh, Mr. Hicks Place. Gong, it used to be a show called The Gong Show. Remember The Gong Show? Yeah, of course. That show was so popular, it started having gong show nights at clubs. And this, Mr. Hicks had like a $25, you could win $25 if you won the gong show. So my brother Charlie told me to go down there. And I went down and I won. And the same night I was on there, there was a dude that owned a bar down the street called the Dolphins Cove named Steve Love. And he was like, hey, how long can you stay on stage? I was like, I don't know. He told me, I'll give you a dollar for every minute you can stay on stage. <laughs> and then I started working his club for a dollar a minute. I was on my way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now, what was the beginning of SNL? Because you were so young when that started, and I, I just wonder how that came about. And also, you know, everybody kind of acknowledges that you saved that show when it was in trouble. What did it give to you? You know what I mean? Like, were there tools that you acquired working on that show that were useful when you went on to other things beyond that? Yeah, I graduate 1979, and I'm on SNL. It's 1980 season. Like, the next year I'm on there. So I'm literally the age you would be when you would go to college. Mm -hmm. And that's what that place was like. It was like going to, you know, school for what I wound up doing. That was like the Harvard, you know, for comic (laughs) actors. Like, so many people came out of there. So, yeah, everything. You learn everything there. And just the pacing even. So when you then go on to do your first movies, which I think were during the time you were also still on SNL, it just didn't feel like an intimidating, massive jump? Yeah, everybody that comes off that show, that's why so many people off that show go off to do, you know, at the very least have careers, you know, and you have so many people that went off to be really successful. Because that show was kind of like, there's no show on Monday, and there's going to be a show Saturday night, and we're going to be live, and we're going to go. Even if the show's not ready, we're going to go. And to work under that type of pressure, if you do that for three, four years, when you come out of there, you feel like everything is moving in slow motion. You know, all of a sudden you're on a movie set, and it'd be like, we'll, we'll be back to you in two hours, and you're just sitting there. You know, and you're used to being like that all the time. Right, right, right. So everybody that, that goes there, it either you know, breaks you or prepares you for anything in show business. Once you made the jump to film acting, your popularity, which was already big, just blew up. And so I wonder, you've said that you have a theory about why, aside from being just funny, people responded to you in a different way than they had really anyone before you. I must have said this a long time ago. No, but it was I haven't had a theory in years. <laughs> you know, I have a theory. Well, I'll read it back to you, and then I'd love to, love to get your thoughts on this. You said, quote, I was the first black actor to take charge in a white world on screen. That's why I became as popular as I became. People had never seen that before. You still feel that was basically the the jarring, different kind of thing that that you were bringing to the table? Absolutely. Just in the same way James Dean, when he shows up, he's the first one to do movies about teenagers and teenage angst and that shit. So all the stuff gets projected onto him that was just, you know, you were just part of this thing this audience that they weren't even servicing. It was like, wow, they'll come see movies about teenagers. Right. And with me, it was like, wow, they'll come see a young black dude in movies. Because you know, <laughs> before then, it was one at a time in the movies. It's one at a time. You have Sidney Poitier. Then you have the black exploitation era, which didn't really count. I'm not talking about there's not one particular person that's it's just a bunch of movies that 
like the, the 70s, a really yeah. weird period. Then you have just one person, Richard, you know, then I pop up, then after me, it's not just one anymore. Right. It just opened, it changed perceptions. Was Does that come with a certain kind of pressure, knowing that you're trailblazing for people, or did you just, you know, you, you felt at ease with that? Yeah, I don't feel any pressure to to live up to anything, that, whatever expectation anyone may have. Well, you said also, which I thought was interesting, that your your earliest movies that were all big hits, 48 Hours, Trading Places, Beverly Hills Cop, the, in these you, you played, in your words, quote, a streety guy, working class, blue collar. Do you have any theory why that specifically clicked so much with people? The everyman. Yeah. And that's what I was playing. Like, those characters are relatable. Yeah. And they're not Superman. You know, and it came right right after the big action movie with the Superman cop with the go ahead and make my day. Uh, then all of a sudden, it was a cop that was like you, you know, like a guy that right. you would know. And I wasn't, I wasn't the perfect cop, you right. know, and I was sweating and 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 struggling and all that stuff. So I was like a regular dude. Right. I've gotten the sense that as you were becoming more and more famous, you knew that a lot of kids were looking up to you and, and you were interested in setting a good example, which might not apply to language, but it definitely applied, like, I believe it's true from what I've read, that you've only had alcohol once in your life? Oh, well, I don't drink, but I don't, I, I've had alcohol more than once. And on SNL, you're coming up with all these guys who had, had issues with drugs and you basically avoided that? Yeah, I never... Uh... Well, you know, they're both, they're both dead now, so I can tell this story. When I was like 18 years old, I remember I went to the blues bar. I was with Robin and John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd. Belushi and Robin Williams offered me some blow, and I didn't take it, and Belushi called me a tight ass. Then years later, I was like, wow, that's a trip. And just think how none of this shit would have happened. None of this would have happened. Because I was a kid, I was, you know, would have yeah. been a whole, the Eddie Murphy story would have been totally different. It could have, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you had some cocaine to it? <laughs> Lord have mercy. But now that was just because you you had in your mind the long game, this is not going to be helpful? No, or? it was nothing, it was nothing, it wasn't wisdom or anything like that. I just wasn't with it. Mm-hmm. You know, like I don't drink, but I, I don't have like this moral thing about it. So I just don't do it right. and I didn't get high. It's just, you know. Two inches in the other direction, you know. It's like it's a lot like that in life, you know. It's like I could one night I could I'm the, I, I admired both these guys. I'm 18 years old. I could just just as easily as I said, nah. I could have said, oh, all right, and tried it. It just didn't happen, right? You know. And years later, but there are a bunch of things like that, you know, that I look back on and be like, wow. And that just reaffirms my faith. Just I know that God is real. There's yeah. been a bunch of times where it could have wound up crashing and burning. Yeah. Like, wow, I just stepped over here right, right on time. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that, as you were coming up, you were so associated with was stand-up, and I just wonder, why did you decide to walk away from that, and what are the chances that you would do it again? I'd read something about if there was a music element, you might consider it. Well, I had stopped doing stand-up because it stopped being fun, and the reason it stopped being fun was harder to write, and this is before the internet. Mm-hmm. It was harder to write new stuff. It had gotten so uh, it had gotten so crazy. Like if I went to the club and tried out a, a bit, the next day it could be like, you know, last night Eddie was on stage with his own so and he said yada yada. It'd be like, man, I ain't even finished that bit yet. They already and it'd be people talking about it. And right. what'd you think of that new joke? And it was like, what the fuck? 
<laughs> and this was years ago it started. Right, right. So I was it, it was like, eh, maybe i take a little break from stand-up. And then uh, the longer the break just got longer, then the whole Def Jam thing started with those comedians. And the whole comedy scene just turned into this big other thing. For years, I'd been procrastinating about it, going, oh, I'll just stand up again. And it just got to, you know, all of a sudden, it's this, I'm this far away from it. Right. But honestly, now, I really am curious about doing it again because it's been so long and so much has changed. And I'm such a different person. I'm curious as to what it would be like if I got on stage. But if I do that, whoever comes to see it has to sit through a bunch of my shitty songs. <laughs> you have to hear my shitty songs between the jokes. Well, I think that's a, a small price to pay. That could be fun. I think it was a small price to yeah, pay. It'd yeah. be just like when you go to the rock shows right. and they play the new material and you like sit down and, right. oh, that's very nice. And, right. and then when they play Satisfaction, you just be like that. When I, when I sing, y'all sit down and be like, it's very pleasant. Right. And then, and then I do Goonie Google. Right. You had so many hits out of the gate that as happens with everybody usually a lot sooner when you finally had a, a few that did not click as much I guess some people gave you a hard time about that and I just wonder how did you handle when for the first time really you were not knocking something out of the park it took a, it took a lot of years for that to even happen with you but when that finally happened with a few movies what was that like for you? I kind of see it from a different perspective than the way you guys may see it See, because from, in my view, I've never had a, a flop movie or a movie that didn't work. If I did the movie and they paid me lots and lots of money to do it, it's a fucking smash. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And a movie is only in the movie theaters for three months, so I can't go, oh, that movie didn't work in the movie theater. It, then it's on, I see the movies that worked in the movie theaters. Right. I'll see 48 Hours play and Pluto Nash should play right afterwards. Right, and nobody right. knows that, you know, nobody's saying, nobody, you know, right. it's, they're, just, they're just part of the lexicon, you know? Right. So any movie that I was in that they paid me a lot of money for, was a fucking smash. <laughs> and to be perfectly honest, we, we celebrate Pluto Nash at my house. We don't, we don't, have, we don't have Christmas Day. We have Pluto Nash Day. Um, <laughs> and we don't have Halloween. We have Vampire in Brooklyn Night. <laughs> Vampire in Brooklyn Night. They all, get their, they all get their moment. All the flops are celebrated. <laughs> so as you began to have kids, is that what drove you towards projects that were aimed at younger people was that the reason you know to get no, I didn't make a conscious effort to do anything like that I know as you get older you you get different and I'm a, a mushier softer person as I get older I'm mushier and softer <laughs> and different things are appealing to me and then once you start having kids you like to be able to take your kids to see some of your stuff you do because I had early on my kids would be like daddy what's delirious I'd be like, oh no you can't <laughs> What is this raw? Right. <laughs> <laughs> What's <this> raw? <laughs> you can't see it. Which were the first ones of yours that they really saw and loved? You'd have to ask them. Yeah. Yeah, but I did a bunch of kid movies and while my kids were kids. Yeah. So there were kids when Shrek, yeah. Shrek and Mulan and all that daddy daycare. And yeah. all, they're all kids when that stuff comes out. I mean, the one that I think is maybe really underappreciated is Nutty Professor, though, because it's just unbelievable that somebody could do seven original distinct characters you've never done but that I don't before. know if that movie's unappreciated it may not have gotten the critical brouhaha yeah. stuff but people really responded to that movie I got yeah. so many letters from people handwritten letters from people famous people like wrote me letters yeah. and was calling me and 
to this day when I see certain, you know, people would be like Nutty Professor, yeah. like really like actor actors yeah. that you guys really like. And, you know, <laughs> when I talk to them, they go into Nutty Professor. So they, 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 they realize it was, you know, cool. Do you care about things like awards? Like whether in that case, I think you should have been nominated. In the case of Dreamgirls, everybody thought, you know, you should have won. Do those things even matter to you? Not like something that I'm crazy. I have a bunch of, in my office, I have a bunch of stuff like that. You know, so I've won a bunch of stuff like that. It's not like every time I was up for something, I got <laughs> snubbed. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but I've, I have a, a table full of awards and stuff like that, you know. But that stuff is, if you don't win it, you know, walk around nuts about it. Right. And if you do win it, it looks nice. For like a day. Yeah, yeah. well, no, it looks nice on a table. If, <laughs> right. I, if I won an Oscar, I have a table already where it would look gris like <laughs> Paige knows about. It. We take right. that right there. We put the Oscar right there if we ever win it. And if not, this looks nice right here. <laughs> I got that, that, that Mark Twain award right. there, and I got a couple of, I got nice stuff. We already have a space made out if it ever happens. And eventually, even if, you know, I'll wait, because I'm pretty healthy, and I'll be around for a while. And if I don't get it, you know, and eventually when right. I'm 90, if it was someone they give you just because you've been in the business so right. long, which the one honorary. is that? Eventually, you're going to have to give me that shit. They'll give you the humanitarian award. 40 award. years, 35 right. years in movies. Eventually, y'all going to have to give me, say, if you'll wait till I'm 85, 90, I'm going to come out a 90-year-old dude in a sky blue tuxedo. There's a reason why it's sky blue. I'm going to walk out, and when they give me the award and they hand it to me, I'm just stand there and just urinate on myself <laughs> in front of the world, the whole world, and just stand there, and then they have to play that music, da, 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 and they have to usher me off, and that's going to be my moment. If y'all made me wait, that's what it's going to be. I love it. <laughs> in all seriousness, though, do you feel that, because this was something you've spoken about since the 80s, when I think you were presenting Best Picture and, and raised some concerns, do you feel like you or others could get a fair hearing. We've just come off of two years of this controversy where there were no nominated people of color for in the acting Yeah, category. but that's not because of the Academy has to, they choose from the movies that get made, and they don't have a hand in what gets made, you know, so they can't control it if that nothing came in that black folks was in or just two or three things that black folks was in was Oscar worthy, it's like. So it's not them, it's the studios gotta start making more stuff where black folks get quality stuff, you know. And then, but I can't trip about that because I've been making movies for 35 years and I played everything from an old lady to a donkey. <laughs> so, so I can't be on it. You're me, hey, don't give us enough roles and diversity. It's like, motherfucker, I seen you as a donkey and an old lady. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to hear shit you have to say. But for the other actors, they need yeah. to make better stuff, more stuff, yeah. more diverse. You know. Now, one of the things that we haven't seen very often from you, but we're seeing in Mr. Church, is a straight-up dramatic part. And I just wonder, first of all, why for the last five years we haven't seen you on a big screen very much, and then why'd you decide this was the one to come back with? Were you looking for a... A dramatic part or did it just happen to be the one that spoke to you? Uh, I haven't been in the movies the last five years because I was giving the audience a break. Yeah, after, after a while the audience needs to break. Like I said, I got an SNL when I'm young so I have a, a high level of visibility for a long time. And I know there are people on TV that I see 
if you see their faces all the time, certain people, I'll just turn the channel. Like, <laughs> I don't even want to see this motherfucker. Right. I, like, I'm, so you just see them all the time, and yeah. it's like, hey, fuck them. I don't care what their new thing is, and I don't give a shit, right. you know. And, I, I don't, and I'm no different from any of the other faces, so if my shit is always out there, after <laughs> I know there's somebody going, if I, if I don't, this motherfucker with that stupid laugh, and right. it, fuck him. So you got to give the audience a break. And then you need a break, too. Yeah. Because, you know, you start taking each other for granted. Like, you take the audience for granted, like, oh, I know what y'all like. <laughs> and the audience is like, oh, yeah, I know what he's going to do. So you're taking each other for granted. And next thing you know, you're in, you're starring in Pluto Nash. <laughs> <laughs> but in this case, it wasn't like, find me a drama? No, no, not at all. I was literally, like, not even thinking about movies at all. Other than writing, I wrote a bunch of stuff. But I wasn't reading anything. I was in the backyard just enjoying the yard yeah. and this popped up and out of nowhere and I had a really strong emotional response to it and I don't get usually get offered anything like this so it was like I never get offered anything like this and wow I'm having this response to it and wow this is really good it's really written well and then I met with Bruce mm -hmm. and Mark and I jumped aboard it was like something that would be easy to do and I was like I never did anything like this. It was like a, something I could do where there's no pressure at all because there's no expectation because this isn't a funny thing. Mm. The engine of this thing isn't, you know, my sense of humor or what I do or my performance. It's like you, you're an actor in this movie. This is a story that's being told and this is the director's movie. So can you compare and contrast the experience, though, for you in terms of your level of ease, your level of enjoyment, of doing a dramatic part like this versus doing a comedy. I mean, with comedy, it seems like you know if it's working because people are laughing or not. With this, how do you feel about doing drama? When you're in the moment, it's all this, the same thing. It's, you know, it's all trying to connect to whatever the scene is and whatever the emotion in the scene is. And if you're trying to be funny, it's all acting is what I'm trying to say without being pretentious. <laughs> The best way to put it is, uh, usually I'm I'm being funny, and I know what that is, and I know how to be funny, and I'm in a situation I know what I know how to act, know how to do that, but I was dealing with emotions that I don't usually deal with, mm -hmm. so you need another person because I don't know all this shit. I don't know if something's gonna be touching or something's gonna you know work or if something's gonna. So Bruce is you know a genius, so mm -hmm. that's right. And I was comfortable with him from the movies that I'd seen he had done. So it wasn't, I was never uncomfortable and it was never harder to do this because I was, let's just let him connect the dots. Yeah. Was there a scene that you were, after reading the script, you know this one's gonna maybe push me the most or take the most out of me so that when you did it, you felt particularly good about it? I didn't have a scene like that. I usually have a scene like that in most of the comedies that I'll do, I have a scene that I'll be dreading the scene. It'll be like, oh, no, that's that scene. And it's usually because I have to do something really physical that I'm not sure it's going to work. And it's like, if I do this and it doesn't work, I'm going to look like a fucking idiot. <laughs> it's usually one scene like that every movie. And I didn't have that here. This is a Because this guy was so... This dude is an introvert. I don't usually play introverts. Yeah. Is that kind of nice to... Rather than, you know, having a character that like a lot of them, in, in a great way, are very animated and make a lot of gestures and that sort of thing. Here, there's a lot of moments of just like quiet and stillness. Is that enjoyable? I'm closer to that than I am Buddy Love 
as a person. <laughs> I'm never like buddy love, yeah. unless I'm joking around or playing. Right. If I'm not playing, I'm more laid back. I'm right. like this. Let me ask you this. There's always people that have objections to things, and in this case, there was the one that I wondered what you thought about. Somebody wrote, a journalist wrote, quote, if there's one thing that studio executives never get tired of greenlighting, it's stories of privileged but emotionally damaged young white people who have their lives changed by the presence of older working-class black folk, close quote. So basically that somebody comes in and, and changes their life. And often it's been, you know, a, a woman like in The Help or some others. But do you feel like that's something that is visited too often in movies or is overdone in movies sometimes? I don't think they make enough movies with black folks to even be saying, oh, yeah, they always make that yeah, type yeah. of movies. Yeah, yeah. Like, I can't, I can't think of a, you know, a bunch of movies. That's not like a genre, you know, the black person that saves the day movie. <laughs> I could think of, you know, a couple of pictures that are like that, but right. it's not like a bunch of movies. It doesn't yeah, yeah. That doesn't, yeah, I don't. What's the biggest misconception about you? What do you think people get wrong most often? I don't even know what people say. I don't even know what people are. I used to be the hippest of the of them all. I used to know everything about everything. I used to read about everything that was going on, and I knew everything. I knew everybody's name and, and anybody that you would that pop culture. Oh, that's so and so. Anything that was written about me, I would read. And for the last maybe twenty years, I haven't I haven't read a newspaper in twenty years, or read a corporate magazine. I don't read corporate magazines or stuff. I don't. I don't read stuff about me. I I would really don't read stuff about me. There's like if someone if there's an article about me, someone has to read through it before they even give it to me. I'm like I don't want to see anything as anything. Anybody may say anything negative. I don't I don't read any of that shit. So I don't know what y'all think. I don't I don't have a computer. I don't have email. I don't have any of that. And, shit. and that's just because you feel it's it's healthier. Just who needs it. It's not even just I didn't I wasn't interested in it, yeah. and I don't need to be on this the social media <laughs> interacting with, with your, the fans. You're and, happy with the you number know, of friends you have tweeting <laughs> tweeting that I just ate strawberries. <laughs> and, you know, I just never. I'm checking y'all out while y'all are doing it, right? You know, but I'm not. not nothing has made me go. Oh yeah, get me too. I want to be on there with y'all. <laughs> I just had strawberries too. <laughs> I'm going to the store now. Look at this picture of this baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not doing none of that shit. Well, just lastly, you know, we've been looking back at, at a lot of your life, and I just wonder, if you had not found success in this field in the way that you did, what do you think you might have done with your life? What could it have been if, if there hadn't been that talent show or SNL or the things that have led you on this path? Yeah, if I didn't wind up doing this, I would have been a musician. I would have wound up being some some singer or something, some artist there. I would have been a I would have been a musician who, between songs, would stop and trying to be funny, and the audience would be like, hey, "I wish you just get to the fucking song. It's just it's fucking jokes constantly." I would, have, I would have been that guy. All right, well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man.